Be seated. Again, my name is Sebastian Bianagord. It's a joy and delight to be with you. Uh, I was mentioning uh, earlier before the service that I first visited the Clue in 2014 when I first visited Edinburgh, and I remember uh, the visit and uh, the warmness and kindness of this congregation. So it's I'm glad to be here with you uh, again as we look at God's Word. Now, if you have your script or your Bibles with you, if you would open to the book of Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, uh, I will be with you, uh, Lord willing, uh, tonight and the following two Sunday evenings as we look at this book. So we'll take uh, one chapter each time. Now, as we get started today, I want to orient ourselves in the history of God's people. The beginnings of God's people can be traced back all the way back to Abraham to the promise that was given to him by God, to have uh, this promise that they would be given uh, a land, that they would be given uh, you know, a people to possess that land. And as we move on, we find the promise given that there are going to be kings that come from that line. And with David, we see the beginning of that promise being fulfilled. You know, people united in the promised land, but following you know, the rule of his son Solomon, the kingdom is divided, split into two. Israel in the north, with Samaria as its capital, and then we have Judea, uh, or Judah in the south, uh, where we have Jerusalem as the capital. And uh, these two exist, you know, side by side, uh, until 722, when we see Samaria fall uh, at the hands of the Assyrians. And it seems that Jerusalem is going to fall as well. As the Assyrians are standing outside of Jerusalem, and it's at that time that the king of, uh, of Judah, as Hezekiah, prays to God, asks him to deliver them, that God actually does do just that. He delivers the people from the Assyrians. But after the reign of Hezekiah came his son, Manasseh, you know, a man who, uh, who rebelled against God, who... Uh, who worshipped the pagan gods, who even sacrificed uh, his own son to the pagan gods. His son followed uh, and was no better. And then after him came Josiah. It came the time where uh, we see the temple being restored. where We see the the law of God being found and and being proclaimed among the people. Uh, We see all the uh, the altars to the pagan gods being removed. You know, it seems like things are going in the right trajectory. That things are finally turning for the better. And then Josiah dies in battle, as we just just read. And this brings us to the time of Habakkuk, with Josiah the king uh, being dead, his one son reigning for three months until the Egyptians come and they remove him. And place his brother on the throne instead. Uh, the man Jehoiakim, as he's mentioned. And this history we see in Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and in the book of Jeremiah, who is a contemporary of Habakkuk. And Jehoiakim was not like Josiah. But as we saw in the text this evening, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now you may wonder why this history lesson. Well, to understand the book of Habakkuk and to understand the complaints that we're, that we're going to see him bring against God, 
we need to understand first the centrality of God's promises. You know, God has promised to them a land and a people. So we can see the confusion of Habakkuk uh, in relation to this promise. And then second, we see the state of the nation. You know, we've seen how Josiah, who seemed to be the great promise, falls. And instead, we see more and more uh, wickedness and idolatry spreading throughout the land. And you know, there's this saying, as the king goes, so goes the people. And that is what we see over and over again uh, in first in, in first and in second kings. And with this, you know, let us read Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And this is the word of God. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked, they surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, and their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Amen. And thus marks the reading of God's holy and errant word. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you 
that you speak to us in your word. We pray this evening that you may speak to your servants, that you may uh, enlighten us by your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last month on May 12th, there's a Christian student in Nigeria, Deborah uh, Yakubu, who posted in a WhatsApp group, Jesus Christ is the greatest. He helped me pass my exams. And because of this, she was then stoned to death by a mob, and her body was burned all because of her faith in Christ. And about a month later, 40 Christians were murdered during a worship service in Nigeria. And there have already, this year, been 23 attacks uh, you know, near the church, at churches this year in Nigeria. And the words that we see in this passage of violence, of iniquity, of destruction, of injustice, of the wicked swallowing up the righteous are perhaps the first words that we may think of as we think of what has been happening in Nigeria. And the words of the prophet of how long probably echoes in the churches of our brothers and sisters in Nigeria. And as years go on with rampant injustice, you know, where the wicked devour the righteous, and when it seems that God is entirely passive, we're instead reminded this evening from this chapter that God is at work. That God is at work. So there's three things we will look at this evening. It's first the cry of lament. We'll see the cry of lament. And then second, the, the unexpected answer. The unexpected answer, and then finally and thirdly, the call to act. Call to act. So first, if you would, look at verses 2 and 4 with me at the cry of lament. You know, this opening is something that we see in several of the Psalms. Like in Psalm 13, where we, where we find David say, How long, O Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, this experience of, of feeling as if God cannot hear us or does not hear us is not limited to Habakkuk, not limited to David, because in this cry for God to hear and to listen, you, each Christian can identify the times in their own lives where you faced inner struggles, outer uh, challenges, adversaries, and yet... Despite countless of times in prayer, numerous tears, wondering if God is really listening. For Habakkuk, the prayers have been concerning the injustices that surrounded him. Remember, at this time, we have Jehoiakim on the throne. And the righteousness was rampant throughout the nation. Fellow Israelites sinning against one another taking advantage of the poor and the needy. And the righteous, those who truly believed in God and who followed Him, they're the ones who are suffering. And the prophet Jeremiah gives us an account of, of another prophet 
who was prophesying in that day. And, and he was prophesying against Jerusalem because of the sins that they were committing. And as a result, the king, Jehoiakim, had him captured and executed. See, those who spoke the truth, they were slandered, silenced, killed, while those who spread lies and unbelief were instead uh, elevated. And we see in these words themselves, how long? I mean, there's a sense in there that Habakkuk has been praying for a while. But he's been consistently racing up his appeals to God as these acts of injustices have persisted. And at the heart of Habakkuk's lament is not the injustice itself, even though of how terrible it is. No, at the heart of the lament is God's passivity. His inaction, the unanswered prayers of Habakkuk. The law, Habakkuk says, is paralyzed. People break God's law over and over again, and yet nothing happens. The wicked suffer no consequences while the righteous are devoured. But God is not passive. He is not ignoring their cries. No, he hears and he is working each day and every hour in accordance with his plan. So next we go on to see the unexpected answer that God will give in verses 5 to 11. And the first thing we note here is that God responds in the plural. Y'all, or I don't know if you say that here in Scotland, but you all. You know, look, you all see, you all wonder, you all be astounded. You know, this tells us that as Habakkuk spoke to God, he did so not merely as an individual, but he was speaking on behalf of God's people. So God is telling the people of God to look, to see, to wonder, and to be astounded. You know, we can tell even from, you know, that of the magnitude that is coming that there's a terrible judgment that is coming and the whole people should be astonished by it. See, God is saying that he is not passive. He is actively working and his work is such that Habakkuk and the rest of the people, they would not believe it. See, one commentator, O. Palmer Robertson, points out that the event that would astonish Israel was not ultimately the action of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, but of the great work of God. That God is the one who is raising up this terrible instrument, the Chaldeans, as an instrument of judgment upon Israel. But Israel did not expect this. But in reality, they should expect it. For they had been warned that when Israel entered into the covenant with God in Deuteronomy, The people promised to love God, to listen to Him, and to follow Him. And God gave them a list of the many blessings that they would enjoy if they listened. But then He proceeded to give them a list of the curses that would come upon them if they did not listen, if they would turn and reject Him. And what these curses are, that you shall shall serve your enemies, 
whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. See, because of Israel's great sin, they should expect curses and not blessings. See, even Israelites like Habakkuk, who sought to live righteously, to honor God in their actions, speech, and thoughts, could not imagine that God would use a Gentile nation who was far worse than them as an instrument of judgment. Now, Chaldean is just a different word here for Babylonians. See, around this time, Babylon is rather quickly gaining power, growing stronger and stronger under their king, Nebuchadnezzar. See, the Assyrians and the Egyptians are both going to wither and fall before Babylon's might. And they will come for Israel as well. Within only a year or two uh, of Habakkuk's prophecy, people will be deported, be taken away from their homes. And within 20 years, Jerusalem will have fallen and its inhabitants largely in Babylon. Now, the prophet Habakkuk He had prayed for God to respond to the injustice committed in Israel between fellow Israelites. But he had not imagined that the solution to this injustice would be captivity and then the fall of Jerusalem. But God says that he is raising up the Babylonians, that God is the one who is in control of all things. That there is nothing that happens in the world outside of his plan of how the rise and the fall of empires and kingdoms are in accordance with his great plan. And he has chosen Babylon as his instrument. And you see, verses 6 onward, God's own description of them, of how they seize dwellings not their own. And one commentator points out that this sounds similar to the promise that Israel was given before they came to the promised land. As God in Deuteronomy promised that they would receive great and good cities that they did not build. Houses full of all good things that they did not fill. Cisterns that they did not dig and vineyards that they did not plan. So Israel was told that they would receive the promised land because of God's promise. But also because of the sins, the many sins of the Canaanites of the people that have been living in the land. But here in Habakkuk, we see a reversal of this, of how in the promise of judgment that God delivers to Habakkuk, Israel is the one who is like the Canaanite nation, whose land will be taken away from them because of their sins. We see in verse 7 that their justice, the Babylonians, go forth from themselves. They set their own standard of justice. No one else can set their definitions of right and wrong. They're swift. They move quickly, conquering everyone before them. Verse 8, that horsemen, they come from afar. It doesn't matter that Babylon is far away from Israel. They're coming. You know, we're not as concerned when an enemy is far away, but the distance will not matter. And they come, verse 9 says, but for what purpose? They come for violence. We see a similarity here with many of the Israelites that Habakkuk described to us in the first few verses of being you know, people of violence. 
the judgment that Israel is receiving here, it's a just judgment of similarity. As people in Israel spread violence all around them, Israel will be overcome by violence. And further, the Babylonians will gather the captives like sand. And even this picture is interesting, using of sand, because in Genesis 22, we see God promising Abraham descendants, so many, you know, like the sand, as numerous as the sand, is how many descendants that he will have. They have been warned that if they break the covenant, they reject God, they shall be gathered up and taken into captivity. And there's nothing that scares the Babylonians. Verse 10, they laugh at kings and rulers. Nothing fears them as they go and they conquer and they go on. They are, God says in verse 11, guilty men whose own might is their God. See, their strength and their prowess are the very things that they worship. You know, and this entire description that God gives us, gives us a picture of the severity of the judgment that is coming upon Israel. Now God's answer here, the answer of judgment is unexpected. But it should not be. See, Habakkuk figured out, figured out that all that was needed was just a little bit of reproof. A little bit of discipline. But no, it is full-scale judgment that is needed. But can't we relate? Of how before knowing Christ, before He, by His Spirit, had shown us our depravity, the depth of our sinfulness, we may say, sure, I'm not perfect. I'm a work in progress. But I can fix it. I just need a little bit of help. But then Jesus comes and he says, no, you don't need self-improvement. You need to die and be born again. You need a new heart. You need the Holy Spirit. And we need Jesus to wipe us clean from our sins and that new heart in order to be able to love God. And the judgment that we deserve for our sins is the Babylonians. It is destruction. It is this part that Habakkuk did not understand. So, responds Habakkuk in the third point in his call for God to act. And if you would look at verses 12 through 17, we see Habakkuk beginning here by acknowledging who God is. He approaches God to, to challenge him, but he does so with what one commentator calls not a weak faith, but a perplexed faith. You know, he knows God, who he is and what he can do, but he still struggles to understand God's answers to, to these circumstances. Because if God goes through with this judgment, then what will happen to God's covenant people? Will they become you know, like the northern uh, kingdom? Will Jerusalem become Samaria? What then of God's promises? Reproof is one thing, but destruction? Surely not. And in the, first, in the first instance, we see Habakkuk's agreement with God in verse 12. You know, he asks, you know, God, are you not from everlasting? 
Well, of course, the answer is yes. God has existed forever, and he will exist forever. And then he immediately says, but we shall not die. But how does that follow? Habakkuk, we see, is closely connecting God and his people because God is everlasting. His people will continue to exist as well because God will never die. We will never die either. In a sense, what is true of God is true of his people. See, Habakkuk admits here that the Babylonians, yes, they are an instrument of judgment for reproof, but that is all they may be. How can they be allowed to be more than that? Judgment, yes. Destruction, no way. But in verse 13, he moves on to describe God's purity, to describe his holiness. And, and this, this is good theology because God is pure. He is holy. You know, in the Old Testament, when God uh, you know, came up with the tabernacle, he had the place in which he dwelled, the holy of holies. And the only time anyone could come in there was once a year. You know, the high priest, just one time a year after he had done, you know, rituals and sacrifices because of God's holiness. So Habakkuk is right in recognizing this, but you'll see that he, how he goes on to ask, well, how can you then look at traitors? How can you be silent then when the wicked swallow up the one that is more righteous than him? Meaning, how can God allow the Babylonians the ones who are more wicked, to destroy the ones who, even though they're sinful, they're less so, the Israelites. You know, so far in Israel's history, it is the enemies of God's people that have been swallowed up, like the Egyptians were swallowed up at the Red Sea. And then he moves on to describe the actions of the Babylonians so far, using the imagery of fish saying God has made mankind like the fish with no ruler. He's accusing God of having made him humanity like a, like a lower life form. Rather than being human with order and structure and justice, what they're experiencing instead is, is violence. It is the opposite of order. There is wickedness abounding. And then verse 15, when Habakkuk says, Here he... Your first of Babylonians. And we see the fish imagery continuing here with words like hook and net. See, a practice of the Babylonians that they had picked up from previously was this practice of when they conquered a city, they would take their new uh, people that they had conquered, they would take literal hooks and put it through their lip and then parade them through the city all the way back uh, to their own city as a way to humiliate them, as a way to demonstrate you know, who was the superior people. And we see the Babylonians rejoicing in these acts of torture and malice. See, for the Babylonians to capture slaves and torture becomes like, like a worship practice. We see in verse 16 with the words of sacrifices and, and, and offerings. Again, their God is their might and their strength. So for them to conquer, to humble, and inflict this sort of, of, of injury and humiliation and death is their worship practice. And because of the ones 
that they made slaves, they, they can now live in luxury with rich foods. And now Habakkuk asks, having described this gruesome image of this people who are murderers, thieves, and idolaters, who reject God and despise the image of God, of despising you know, uh, you know, humans that have been made in God's image, he asks God, shall they continue to do this? God, will you let them continue to go about this? As he says, if they will go on killing and enslaving the nations. Where is the Lord who is a God merciful and gracious? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Where is he to stop this injustice? Now, barring the return of Jesus in our own lifetime, which we yearn and pray for, we will all die. And we live our life in this time of the already and the not yet. Of this time where in Christ we have been born again. You know, we have a new heart. We're, we're no longer under the dominion of sin. Yet, at the same time, we are in, in this fallen world. We, we still struggle with sin. We uh, have bodies that fail us. And we are in the midst of this tension while we wait for the return of Christ and the restoration of all things. And we see this struggle in Habakkuk's mind as well. For the people of God have been given these great promises. Yet the promises have not been fulfilled yet. So we can relate, don't we? Of, of asking God, in the midst of suffering, the why question. Now Habakkuk is, to an extent, given an answer. But we aren't. We do not know why the many terrible things go on in the world and in our lives. We don't know why the killings are happening in Nigeria. We don't know why the war is happening in Ukraine. We don't know why our, our family member is suffering these ailments or why our friend has suddenly died. But we do know from the text that God is listening. He is listening and he is caring, and he is at work. So then, what is God's work? See, Paul quotes the response by God that we've seen here in Habakkuk uh, in, in the book of Acts. And Paul says to the crowd, But he whom God raised up, speaking of Jesus, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from every, everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe 
even if one tells it to you. So what is the work that God is doing? What is the work of Jesus Christ? See, Jesus Christ is the one who on the cross cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet God did not respond. Jesus is the one who was unjustly condemned, even though he had committed no crime. Even though Jesus was the one who was from everlasting, he did die. The holy and pure one who who did cast his eye even at his murderers. And who cried out, oh father forgive them. They know not what they do. He is the most righteous one who was swallowed up by great wickedness. See, this is the work. The work of the death of the Son of God and the life and the forgiveness of sins that we have through Him. So through this work, what is it that God desires most of all? What is he hoping to achieve by this great work? Well, elsewhere we see God say, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, what God wants most of all is you. All that you are for you to love him. See, even in the destruction prophesied here in Habakkuk, the purpose was not merely utter destruction and annihilation, but it was to drive God's people from their sin, from their idolatry, back to Him. To drive them back into the arms of their Heavenly Father. So yes, there is, in a sense, uh, punishment for their sin. But it's not punishment to be cast away. But it is to drive them back. So when Habakkuk asks, how long? And when he asks why, God points to the judgment that is coming. He's pointing them to the Babylonians. Now when we ask why, God points to the judgment That should have been ours. Judgment like the Babylonians and indeed even greater. But of how that judgment was placed elsewhere. Having been placed and laid and indeed even poured on the Son of God. Now there's no way to live the Christian life in the neutral. Just coasting, you know, coasting along. We either move closer to God or we move away from Him. So you may ask yourself this evening, in the past few months, have you found yourself growing closer to God or further from Him? You know, have you in your sufferings open up your heart? Like we see Habakkuk do here. Opening up your heart to the Lord. And have you set your eyes on the mightiest of God's work, 
of the work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to save you. Because if you are here today, and you lean on and you rest on Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that he is yours, now and forever. So do not wait until tomorrow, but pray you know, this evening to your Heavenly Father, you know, confessing your sins, by encouraging yourself by the promises that we find in the Scriptures. For as we see um, the text say elsewhere, for he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let us pray. Father God, we pray this evening that you may hear us, that you may hear our prayers, that you will hear our tears. And Father, that in the times and moments when we doubt your love, when we ask yourself, does God really care? Father, may we simply look at the cross. May we see the great uh, sacrifice of your Son. And may we in that see the love of you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you would, please uh, stand as we will sing, My Soul Finds Rest uh, in God Alone.